0: Welcome
1: to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Today, I'm excited to have two guests on the show. Kristen Sharp, who is the CEO of the Education Quality Outcomes Standard Board, where she is working with states and education providers to implement an outcomes standard-based approach to evaluate short-term education programs. And Allison Griffin, a dear friend of mine who is a senior vice president at Whiteboard Advisors, where she collaborates with policymakers, entrepreneurs, and philanthropists to solve pressing issues in the world of higher education. Basically, Allison knows everything and everyone there is to know about higher education, so I wanted to make sure she's here today so that I'm not asking the wrong questions. In this episode, we are not going to be talking about enrolling in traditional higher education programs like associates and bachelor's degree. Instead, we're going to be talking about other non-traditional training and skilling options that are a pathway to a career. Kristen and Allison, I'm so pleased to have you both with us today to talk about these options. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Beth. So happy to be here. I'm going to start off with kind of a basic question here, which is to say, perhaps I or someone in my family are looking for a pathway to a new career, but I'm not interested in going the associate's or bachelor's degree route. There is a huge landscape of options out there, but it seems a little bit tough to wrap your hands around what is actually there. Can one or both of you give me a sense of what that landscape looks like and what are the options that people should be thinking about if they're considering something other than an associate's or
0: a bachelor's degree? Beth, thank you so much for the question and thank you for having me on the show. You know, when I think about alternative pathways to a credential or a credential that leads to a job, I actually step back just a little bit and think about the conversations that we are having as a country about post-secondary education. A lot of times we hear higher education, and I think that paints a picture for a lot of people about a residential, perhaps two or four year experience when you're between the ages of 18 and 22. And that's not always the pathway that everyone should or, or, or could take. And so I think we have to start talking about the, the pathway beyond high school, the academic pathway beyond high school as post-secondary education and training. And so when I think about the opportunities that are available to learners and learners really beyond, at any age, I think about programs that, academic programs that align with the jobs in our labor market and opportunities for skilling, getting skills acquiring knowledge, and certainly making connections across an industry or a program of study that aligns with an industry. And there, you're right, there are lots and lots of opportunities. And the thing that I think is most important for learners to begin to figure out, and I'm excited to hear from Kristen on this, is how to actually find a quality program, a program that ensures what a student learns. Are actually the skills and knowledge that will prepare them for a job.
1: Yeah. You know, Allison, it's a good point, too. Like the language that we use here is important. And you and I wrote a piece recently and, and you pushed us to use the language of education after high school. And I thought that was actually a really nice way of talking about this because when we do say college, even in the title of this podcast, I say college, that gives the listener or reader a particular sense of what you're talking about that might not actually be inclusive enough for all the options that are available. But, you know, we're talking again, like pathways, skills. What's some concrete stuff here? You know, I don't want to go to college. I don't want to go live on a campus for four years. I don't even want to go to get an associate's degree in psychology or something like that. What What are my options? Like, what are the bins of options out there? You know, how can we start to organize what those are?
2: It's a great question, Beth, because I think one of the things that we need to do as a full education field is to start creating more easily identifiable pathways for things. Things that you can figure out, You know, here are the options, here are the things that match up with my skills and interests, and here's the connection point of how I find those things. And that is the key piece that's missing right now. If I'm a person that's looking for a new skill, I think the easiest thing to do is to think regionally, to think about the city or area that you live in, and start thinking about the kinds of jobs that are available there. Truly, there's, you know, search functions and things online, but also asking friends and neighbors and thinking about the biggest employers in your area and then thinking about what kinds of training programs those employers either have themselves internally or partner with. I can think of lots of specific examples in specific fields in the, you know, sort of North Carolina region where there are a lot of banks, there's fintech and training programs for fintech. In regions that have big hospital systems, there's all different kinds of access points in the medical field. There's cybersecurity almost always and everywhere and background IT tech things. Coding is a universally needed field right now and there's lots of different trainings for that. So I would start thinking about the things I like to do, and then thinking about sort of what kinds of Googling, basically, what kinds of skills, what programs are out there that offer those kinds of skills. There are intermediary websites that are starting to identify those kinds of lists, the credential registry, Onward, Skill Up, some of the the sort of curated platforms that connect people with interests and then pair those interests with the short-term options, the short-term training programs that train people into those options. So starting to look at those things. But to Allison's point, you need to know which ones are good. And so the thing to think about is when you're looking for programs like that is which ones are high quality, which ones will increase your ability to earn income and connect you to a job fast. You know, Those are the things that are data points that aren't that easy to find right now. (laughs) And so what we're trying to do at eQuo's is create categories of data that every education and training program collects so that two and four-year degree programs, but also short-term training programs have the same information about what the results of their programs are so that learners can see it.
1: Right. Because I operate more in the traditional higher ed space where I'm constantly telling people, go to the college scorecard and see you know how much people are paying to go to a degree program and, and what their outcome looks like after it's over. But Am I right that what you're saying is that that just doesn't exist in this space for alternatives?
2: Exactly right. There is no college scorecard for short-term programs right now. And there is no college scorecard that allows you to compare two and four-year degree programs with certification or certificate or short-term programs. And so having the baseline set of things, you know, we want to know how many people complete the program. We want to know of those people, how many get the license or licensure that you're trying to teach for it. You want to know how many people get a job and how much they make in that job. And being able to have those pieces of information for each program will really give learners better skills for picking which programs they want to go into. And it'll give employers and others that want to partner with those training programs, the ability to pick the best ones.
1: So that's a great vision for where we should be going, right? (laughs) Allison, do you have thoughts on in the absence of that being here today, I know Kristen is going to get us there in the future, but, you know, and I'm saying I'm considering for my my son or for myself a program. Can I look at those parameters for the programs that I've found through Googling and through talking with people in my community about what options are available? Or or are there other things I should be looking at that, that do exist?
0: Sure. So I will, I will agree with, with Kristen to say that that college scorecard for accelerated or short-term training programs does not exist. She is correct, that universal scorecard. However, what is happening in states is that some states are taking all the information that they are gathering about the programs that are authorized to operate or be offered in that state and putting some of that data on websites that are accessible to consumers. So. Beth, as you know, I live in Colorado and spend a lot of time looking at different programs and and platforms that are available to learners. And in Colorado, there's a platform called My Colorado Journey, which is actually a collaboration across state agencies. So workforce development, education, human services. They essentially have teamed up to provide tools and resources to Coloradans about how they can find and prepare for their next job, how they might discover a career path in Colorado, which was what Kristen was speaking to, where those jobs exist. And then it directs them to education and training opportunities that will help them identify and develop the skills that they need for those jobs. I share the, the Colorado resource because it is a comprehensive resource. It's available to citizens who want to get more information. But a platform like the one I've just described, or even the college scorecard, which you've referenced, don't exist at a at a national level.
1: Do other states have
0: initiatives similar to what's happening in Colorado? There are some states that are building out a journey, if you will, platforms. You know, my Colorado journey, Right. And specific to other states. I'm not familiar with which, which states have embraced that model, but there certainly is momentum at the, you know, local level, at the state level to make sure that learners across all age groups and backgrounds have access to information. I will reiterate though what Kristen has said, that measure of quality. Those metrics are oftentimes not included on some of these websites. So what we've seen is the state will pool information based on the programs that are authorized to operate, but it doesn't really give the the learner more details about the quality of those programs and some of the outcomes that Kristen has just identified. So we still have a ways to go but some of those platforms are under development at the local and state level. It's a great
2: point Allison and part of the reason that state platforms don't have outcomes information, results information on their websites right now is that that information just isn't out there yet. And so working to help education and training providers figure out what kinds of data they need to collect, how they collect it and how they report it is one of the key steps in in sort of standardizing and allowing the view into different programs to be more universal. So I think that that effort is underway right now. Per Allison's point, there are a number of states that are trying to get there. Colorado is a great example of a state that is trying to connect the number and type of programs out there with career paths and then start thinking about how to overlay the results information on the evaluation of those programs. Indiana, New Jersey, Florida, Delaware, Alabama, there's probably There's a handful of probably 10 or so states that are really thinking carefully about this and want to be able to get there, want to have both a list of programs out there and an ability to say what they think quality is in those programs. And that's something that we all need to get to and that, you know, the federal government should eventually get to as well. But there has to be a way to collect and get that data first. So that's kind of the starting point.
1: I'm with you. But guys, you didn't answer my question. I need to go sit down tomorrow with the admissions office at this certificate training program that I found down the street from my house. What questions am I going to ask?
2: So the first and foremost, the number one question that I would ask is, what's your approach to coaching and mentoring? The programs that we have seen as we've anecdotally, as we've evaluated the results of different kinds of programs are that in order to get a job today, you have to be able to... Articulate what your skills are, prove that you have them, and then show an employer that you can problem solve using those skills. And that's something that most people really don't do instinctively. And so the programs that use coaching, mentorship, apprenticeship, on the job training, those are the ones that really successfully turn out candidates that can succeed in the real world. So if I'm a candidate, that's what I look for, number one.
0: Okay, great. I think that's a really helpful tip. The other thing that you as a as a learner should also consider as you are exploring these programs is how much they cost and what types of financial aid might or might not frankly be available to cover the cost of those programs yeah great point our federal financial aid system is set up in a way right now that students are unable to use Pell Grants or federal student loans to cover the cost of a lot of these short-term credentialing programs. And so oftentimes, the learner is in a situation where they either have to cover the cost of those programs themselves, so it's an out-of-pocket cost. Sometimes they have an employer who is willing to pay the cost of that program. Perhaps they're already in a job and their employer wants them to get a new skill or have some new knowledge. The employer is sometimes willing to cover the cost of that program, or the student finds themselves in a position where they might need to take out a private loan, which really limits the cohort of students who are able to access these programs because private loans aren't readily available to, to every learner who wants to acquire one.
1: And if you're taking on a private loan, you really need to know about the quality of this program before you're signing up because you're leveraging your financial future. That is absolutely
0: correct. And so what we've seen, and Beth, I know you and I have done some work on the, the issue of innovative finance. There, there are some new and emerging ways for learners to actually cover the cost of these programs through what is called an income share agreement. And just for those who are listening, it's essentially a way to front the cost of the education sometimes philanthropy or a government agency or even the education provider themselves pays for the cost of the program up front. And then once you, as the learner, finish your program and you earn a credential and you get a job, then you pay back a percentage of your income to cover the cost of of that program. So there's some new ways that are emerging for learners to pay for programs. But I think a significant consideration about accessing some of these short-term programs is how are you going to pay for that program of study? Right.
2: I do think, though, that anytime we're talking about new approaches to financing, you have to have results information readily available. It's the sort of linchpin of being able to think about either federal or state aid or alternative approaches to financing is to be able to say, what do you get for having gone through this program? And as the learner, what are the checks on ensuring that you get what you pay for, basically?
1: Kristen, I liked your comment earlier about the mentoring, the importance of that aspect of these training programs and considering what quality looks like and, you know, which programs are likely to actually help you get somewhere. On the other end, are there program types or styles that are really aren't working well or that could be red flags for people considering an alternative path to career. You
2: know, that's a great question. We're at equos new enough that in terms of piloting our data collection framework that I can only speak anecdotally to that, but I would say that programs that sort of exclusively rely on prior information and don't have a way to shore up that private information and help people use it in the context of the program can be problematic.
1: What do you mean by prior information? Well, so if you're coming in,
2: you know, needing to have backend coding in order to do data, data analytics and you don't have it, <laughs> that, you know, people often don't have the capacity to get all the way through the program and don't, if there isn't coaching or mentoring or something to sort of help them connect those pieces, it becomes more problematic. So that kind of thing. I'd also say that, you know, just sort of basic governance things, programs that it's great to have experimental and innovative new programs, but you do want to build into those programs the ability to continue improving as you go so that they can learn from previous sets of students and that kind of thing. You want to have a process for continuous improvement is, is something to look for.
1: Oh, yeah. Good point. We hear a lot about coding boot camps, for instance, in the newspaper because they're kind of new and exciting. But what are the tried and true models in this space? I hear you guys saying certificates. What are certificates exactly?
0: And, and is that the bulk of what's happening in this space? So the bulk of what is happening in the short-term training program provider space, and you mentioned boot camps, is the award of a certificate. And the certificate... Is a credential. So it's we think of this sometimes as a, a piece of paper, but there, there are certainly other ways to acquire that credential that, that indicate that you have a particular skill set or you have acquired a particular body of knowledge. And oftentimes you have industry recognized credentials. So let's say you are in technology or manufacturing. Those industries have come up with standards of the things that you should know and know how to do. And the alignment between what the job will require and what the program of study is offering is usually reflected in an industry-recognized credential. And so if you earn that certificate from a short-term provider you can show the employer, I have actually learned how to do the thing, or I understand this topic. And you can present that certificate to the employer to demonstrate the acquisition of skills, knowledge, or experience.
1: And so there's different paths to that credential, meaning you could sit in a classroom for many hours, you could be an apprentice or some other model, right? I mean, that's Correct. that's kind of what's innovative about the credential programs is that they don't look all the same,
0: right? That's correct. Yes, that is innovative. You know, a lot of these programs are, you know, I've said meeting learners where they are, right? So sometimes those programs are in person, sometimes they're online, sometimes they are a combination of in-person and online, sometimes they have that work-based experience, or some mix of, of all of those And what I found to be most attractive about some of these short-term programs, unlike, frankly, some of our two- and four-year programs, is if they're offered at times of day or days of the week that meet the needs of the learner. So uh, typically, when we think about someone who is pursuing a post-secondary education program, I would say not typically, historically, when we think about someone who's pursuing academic success beyond high school, we still go back to this idea that you have to show up to a campus and move into a residence hall and eat in a dining hall. And that's just not a conducive experience for a lot of people who are working or raising a family or you have other demands on their time. And so what has been, I think, one of the most attractive factors of some of our short term credentialing programs is that they're offered in the evening or maybe two days a week or on every other Saturday for half a day. And they're also providing resources to those learners like transportation or childcare, books and materials. So some of those things that a learner may struggle to access or line up as they're seeking to, you know, grow their skills, knowledge, and experience are oftentimes provided by those short term training programs.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a real strength of, of that sector. The other thing that I'd say is I I don't think that they're
2: mutually exclusive. I think that there is really room in the post-secondary world to have both a two and four-year degree program and a certificate. And even pairing those things can be really helpful. It can give you the basic technical skill that you're trying to learn, plus the ability to frame and tell the story of why that skill is helpful and sort of give you the problem-solving, the systems thinking, the putting the pieces together things that makes you successful in a job or in an employment situation or in a self-employment situation. So a lot of times I think of them as programs that do the and really well, the technical skill and the how you apply that, that short-term certificates can be helpful on that front for people in traditional programs as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And it kind of reminds me of of something I wanted to ask you all about. And That's the sense that I tend to get in these conversations, that people sometimes think of these programs as being sort of a second-class set of programs relative to traditional bachelor's and associate's degrees. For example, I saw a tweet on Twitter just the other day that I thought really encapsulated this. The pushback I often get, the tweet simply said something like, then why don't you become a welder? And I (laughs) thought, well, clearly what this person is saying is, you know, there are folks like us who clearly have college and advanced degrees sitting around and, and suggesting for other people that this is a, a viable path. And, and we believe that a career outcome is, is the destination. And so we push these as being reasonable options. How do you respond to that? Because, you know, I don't believe that certificate or non-academic training programs are second class, but how how do you all respond to that? I respond that I think the
2: thing that A traditional degree really gives a learner is a social network and an ability to connect with people in a way that helps you be able to figure out how to put the pieces together, how to put all your skills, your interests, your knowledge of the economy or the labor market or whatever kind of job you want to get together to figure out where you fit in that and that you can get that in other ways. You just need to be able to learn that skill. So if my elementary age children, you know, someday said that they didn't want to go to college, I would say, okay, but we have to figure out a plan that will set you up for success. And, you know, that plan can be entrepreneurship. It can be in a skilled trade. It can be in the military. It can be in lots of different places, but you have to have a plan for how you are going to think about how you translate your interests into something employable or income generating.
0: Yeah. 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 How about you, Allison? So I also have elementary, well, I should say preteen, teenage children. So two boys. And, you know, I think about this all the time. And what I really wrestle with actually is the need to destigmatize all pathways to a successful future. And I actually think it starts, this is a simple, maybe a a simple thing is to, to start taking down all of the university pennants that we have hanging in our high schools. Mm, interesting. We are visually signaling to students in high school that the only option that they have or might strive toward is that of the name on the flag, the name on the sweatshirt, as opposed to ever talking with students about what is it that you love to do? What is it that you want to be? And starting to signal visually that there are a lot of pathways and opportunities for success in the future. So that could be a mix. And, and you know, this is maybe oversimplified, but know a mix of pennants that, you know, reflect college and university names that identify trades and skills-based providers that reflect careers or names of companies, you know, in the local community. But how do we start to visually represent to students that there are a number of pathways? I still think, you know, as a parent, I think about this all the time with my kids. It still goes back to that conversation about the experience and how that learning experience aligns with both what you want to do, but is one of quality. And I, 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 that goes back to what Kristen and the, her team at Equos are trying to accomplish and the framework that they are laying out around the quality aspect of these programs to give learners and families a better sense of what that credential will actually mean in the marketplace.
2: Right. I think those are really great points. I think that the number one thing that any post-secondary program should do, two-year, four-year, short-term credential, anything else, is give people a sense of control over their life and how they'll earn income. And so what we should do in middle and high school situations is expose people to college potential, but also expose people to different kinds of jobs that they can have and different kinds of entrepreneurial opportunities that they can have and things. Because the number one thing that people say when I ask them in communities or talk to people in pilot programs about why did you get into this, it's because they knew somebody who had done it successfully. You know, they had heard about it on the radio. They talked to someone in their neighborhood. They had a friend of the family who did it and they saw what the result could be. And it gave them a sense of control that if I go through this six month program or two year program or four year program, I will achieve X thing. And that's the thing that in a world where jobs are becoming more and more specialized, we have to let people see what the options are so that they can figure out how to control how they get there.
1: Right. No, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'd, I'd love if we could shift to a world where we start celebrating more avenues towards career and you know financial independence because that's what, if you look at the statistics, that's what people are going to school for, right? I think something like 91% of people report that financial and career advancement is their number one goal in education. And so we should probably acknowledge that and, and start to celebrate other avenues that get people there outside of traditional bachelor's and associate's degrees.
0: Or in addition to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think, you know, frankly, one of the most powerful things that we and Beth, you acknowledge this, you know, those of us who have a relatively traditional post-secondary experience or have advanced degrees, if we really believe that these pathways are of quality and are stackable into an associate's or bachelor's degree in the future, then we need to start having conversations with our own children about making those decisions and helping them figure out how to pursue those pathways. And I actually think some of that begins at the traditional secondary school age, when we allow our students to explore different careers and career options, maybe even participate in a concurrent or dual enrollment program or a apprenticeship or an internship while they're still in high school and figure out if, one, those those opportunities align with the thing that they're actually interested in doing, and then starting to to talk to other parents about those same pathways. I think if if we're going to be the ones to share these short-term credential experiences with others, we should start to embrace them ourselves.
1: That's a wonderful point. I think that's a good point for us to end the conversation today. And I want to thank you both so much, Kristen and Allison, for being here to talk about this with me. I've, I've learned something from the conversation today, and I hope that our listeners will too. So thank you again for your time today.
0: You're so welcome. Thanks, Beth. Thank you very much.
1: If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and it's available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at DrBethAkers. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.